You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello again, this is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. We have today uh, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And we have as our special guest today, one of my partners, Dr. Erica Munch from TFC San Antonio. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Hey, Erica. Thanks for being here. Glad you could join us. So what have you guys been up to lately? So I am currently on a Hamilton binge um, of listening to the music and singing along in my office. Now, granted, I keep it quiet enough because my, my partner's offices are right next door to mine. And so I can't like belt out the music, but, um, but I definitely listen to it and, and I'm kind of on a binge right now because the lyrics are just so clever. It's a good one. It's a good one. I, I love the rotating stage. I've always been like a huge fan of any production. I think the first time I ever saw that happen was in Les Mis like eons ago. And whenever that comes back, I'm like, oh, it's the it's the Les Mis stage. That's what I always think of it as. Have you, any of y'all seen Dear Evan Hansen? I have not, but my daughter wants to see that. And I'll have to make an admission that... Um, I'm a big fan of visual arts and I paint and I like to look at arts and art, art and go to art museums. Um, I minored in art history, but I'm not a huge fan of musical theater. I hate to admit that. That's probably not <laughs> a cool thing if you're a female. <laughs> My husband, however, is a big fan of musical theater. And for quite a long time, we had um, tickets to our local um, Tennessee Performing Arts Theater. And of all the musical theater that I saw, but my favorite was Jersey Boys. And it was kind of one of those ones I went into it and I really didn't think, you know, I was like, oh, here we go again, you know. But I love the music and I just, I love the performances and I love the songs. And that's definitely one that I would, I would repeat and I would see again. So that's kind of my favorite. Recently, I just saw Cats that was also here in Nashville. And my daughter actually in high school, they had a production of Cats as well. So in a matter of one week, I saw a professional production and a high school production. <laughs> Did you watch the movie Cats too? You know, ironically, it was right around the same time when the movie came out and I did not see that because my daughter saw it and she said, uh, I don't really like it, mom. I don't think you, I definitely don't think you'd like it. So I did not see that. Did you hear about what the Cats movie, and this may or may not be true, that they released it in the theater and it had such a bad like release that they actually released an updated version to all of the movie theaters really? with like different edits or clips or something like that to try to get it like turned around in the back box office. I've, I've mm. never heard of anything like that before. Yeah. I think they lost a lot of money on that because I mean, there's so many people in there that you recognize and I thought, mm -hmm. oh, this is going to be great. And my daughter saw it and she's like, it was a little scary mom. The, the, the way they changed the appearance of the cat, she goes, it was just almost kind of creepy. <laughs> so with that endorsement, I didn't go see it. How about you, Erica? Have, what, what's your favorite musical theater production? 
I did see Hamilton last year. I enjoyed it. I would agree with Carrie. Like the the lyrics are so spot on, but they go so quickly that really like you have to, you know, you have to study listen it. back to the, you have to study it. I have to like read the lyrics online, you know, <laughs> be that person that's like Googling the lyrics. Um, I did like it though. Um, I actually saw Book of Mormon last year as well. And oh, I think I actually- so funny. Yes, I liked that. I think that is probably my my favorite, most recent uh recent production that I've seen, but that was hilarious and spot on. Are you a fan of all the South Park type stuff as well? (laughs) I, you know, I didn't watch it that much in high school and college, but my husband really did. (laughs) And he, he very much, it was, it was actually a gift to him that we were going to go see it with some of our friends. And, um, he very much appreciated, uh, uh, the show and kind of the similar, I guess, types of humor um, <laughs> that are a little bit beyond just the the words themselves. I, I think it was very well done. So, Well, I saw Come From Away about mm, a month or two ago. And I have to tell you that it was probably one of the most powerful musicals I've ever seen. Huh. Is that the Sarah Bareilles one? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the, it's the story, uh, about, um, some events that followed 911. Oh, wow. Okay. And it was just, it literally was one of those performances that you would be laughing and then you would start crying and then you would be laughing and then oh, you would gosh. start crying. I mean, like I was exhausted. <laughs> a whole gamut of emotions. Is that the one where they're talking about that tiny little town that had to accept like 300 yes. plane passengers in the middle of... Oh no, like 7,000 passengers, like a ridiculous, like they oh. doubled the size of the town or something in Newfoundland. And it was it, like hands down, I, I think it was probably the best production. I We've had tickets to the Majestic Theater in San Antonio for 10 or 11 years. And I've had lots of ones that I've enjoyed. I have to say, I think this is the best new release in a long, long time. Like it was just, it was phenomenal. Okay. I'm, I'm going to see that if it's coming to Nashville. You, you gave it a really good billing. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it, it's good. I remember it's reading good. about the, the story that that was based on, because I think it was based off of a newspaper article, wasn't it? That somebody had put together after 9-11 that, um, that really detailed all of these people essentially having to stay with random families because they had nowhere else to be. It, it's it's so good, and even the performance we had, they um, one of the flight attendants who's in the in the show um, was in our audience, and um, it's it's just it's neat because you know I'm I'm a sucker for anything that's a true story, um, and the fact that like you could not have made this so well if you made it up. Like only real life, <laughs> unfortunately, can can bring you those highs and lows that you experience. So speaking of highs and lows and maybe lows, Erica is going to talk to us a little bit about um, oncology for fertility patients or, or 
fertility for oncology patients, I guess, I guess I should say. So Erica, tell us a little bit about why you wanted to talk about that topic. And we're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Yeah, well, I think, thank you, Abby. I think you're spot on when you said that it's both highs and lows. You know, a lot of patients um, initially, and even just, you know, family members, friends, people that hear about, um, about a recent cancer diagnosis that they have a friend or family member going through. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of of anxiety. There's a lot of um, worry about what the future holds. Um, and that's not only true in, in their survivorship and as far as beating their cancer moving forward, but then also thinking about what that means for life afterward. Um, and I think specifically, again, thinking about highs, thinking about lows, um, obviously the cancer diagnosis is probably one of the lowest lows that you can have in your lifetime having a child or building your family is probably one of the highest highs that most people experience in their lifetime. And so taking those two ideas and, and putting them together um, in a way that, that I'd like to talk about today specifically with um, cancer patients and being diagnosed with um, being diagnosed with cancer and what that means afterwards, um, I think that's a really important topic. And I think it is important not only that you know, potential, I guess, patients or people diagnosed with cancer know what their options are, but really, you know, it, it takes a village, right? And having anybody hear about the options for parenthood and family building after a cancer diagnosis is important for that supportive friend. It's important for the spouse. It's important for the mother or the aunt or the, you know, cousin or their doctor or somebody to know that there are those options so that they can share those um, with their loved one at the right time. So how does that process usually start, Erica? So from a patient standpoint, that, that process starts generally when they're in their doctor's office and, and they have that diagnosis. Um, and it's very different for each patient what kind of information they get um, with that cancer diagnosis. First of all, getting a diagnosis like cancer or precancer or needing to undergo chemo or radiation for other diseases besides cancer. A lot of times, one, it's difficult to remember anything in that conversation that happens after that, after those words are spoken. So sometimes this doesn't even happen until the subsequent visits. Um, but then what happens with the patient is that their physician, who's usually an oncologist or a cancer specialist, is talking with them about the next steps. And generally, those next steps talk about the treatments that are available for that particular type of cancer. Sometimes that treatment is surgery or chemotherapy, which is medicines usually given through the IV, um, or radiation, which is radiation directed towards where the cancer is in the body. Patients will have the ability to know kind of what lies ahead in those next couple of weeks. And if the oncology physician deems that it's appropriate, which it, it ought to be really for anybody of reproductive age, they talk about those risks and benefits of those treatments and how specifically in my world, how they may affect future fertility. Um, and if it's decided that the patient is interested in conceiving after um, they get over and beat their cancer, then um, or even if they're unsure about that, that's usually when I would come into the process being a fertility specialist and I'd be able to give them specific information about not just the type of cancer, the, the treatment that they're going to receive, but how that affects their fertility going forward and how there might be available options to help preserve their fertility now or 
do things that will help preserve their fertility in the future for when they're ready to build their family. One thing that I would find very helpful with working with these patients is that the earlier we can get fertility into the conversation, the better. Because I think all of you, you know, we've all worked with patients with cancer before, but a hard thing to deal with is when they come into our offices and it's two days before they're supposed to start chemo. For some of our listeners out there who may not necessarily be patients, but other physicians out there, if you are involved in somebody's care early on, whether you're a family practice doctor, internal medicine doctor, or whatever, or a surgeon, and there's that diagnosis at the same time that you're having this multi-pronged approach of helping tackle the cancer, the, the fertility conversation should be something that, that happens in there. Right. And, and you're right, Susan, it should be a conversation. You know, if you look at the studies that have been done about patients and what their, um, what their fears are, what their hopes are for the future, of course, you know, top among all of those probably unified across all providers and patients is surviving the cancer and beating the cancer. Number two, very closely behind number one for these patients of reproductive age is family building in the future. I can't emphasize how important that is to these patients that, you know, basically had their lives going on, on autopilot and then all of a sudden get derailed with a diagnosis like this. That is among their top two concerns as far as what's going to happen after that cancer diagnosis. How am I going to beat this? And how am I going to move forward with the life that I was planning or me and my partner were planning? Um, and that should be a conversation that can be something that's brought up at that initial appointment. That should be something that's readdressed because those feelings or things may change, you know, in those, um, in those next couple of days as they start to learn more information. And after they get over that initial stock, shock, really start to ask questions about, okay, well, what, what does this mean, you know, for XYZ? So how do you approach it time-wise? Because I know, at least for our office, we if someone calls and says that they're a cancer patient or an, another doctor's office calls and says, I'm referring you a cancer patient, even if it's not the oncologist, even if it's just their family doc, we try and get them in within 24 hours to start the conversation. But once you've had that initial conversation, how long does it typically take to get somebody from, hello, how are you doing, to we have your eggs or we have your sperm or we have your embryos frozen for you. Right. Um, I think that the the soonest that we would have that for most patients is within about two, two and a half weeks. Um, the longest can sometimes be several months depending on when, um, when their therapies are are needed. Um, it very much depends on the type of cancer. We have the same policy um, at TFC as, as you guys do. You know, we have a patient that calls or a physician that calls says, hey, I have a patient that needs to be seen. We get them worked in that same day or next day. Um, I've been attending or in attendance with um, some of the multidisciplinary teams that are here in San Antonio that specifically review breast cancer cases, among other types of cases, and again, younger age women. And they know me, they have my phone number, Number, they know to call. They know, hey, we've got this person that really wants to be seen. Um, and at that first appointment, 
we cover a lot of information um, and some patients are ready to jump in right away. Some patients, depending on the type of cancer, might have surgery first and then a window of time to do their fertility preservation treatments before they start the chemotherapy. Some patients may not have the ability to go through fertility preservation treatments because of the type of cancer they have. Certain cancers, they need to start the chemo immediately and we may not have the opportunity to freeze their eggs or embryos, but they know what their options are for family building moving forward. And that can be just as helpful sometimes for them to know that, hey, you know, we've got a plan for my survivorship and family building after all this is said and done. So from the time that somebody decides they want to go through um, a fertility treatment cycle where we're freezing their eggs or embryos, it takes about two weeks. Um, and for some people, they want to postpone their fertility treatment for um, fertility preservation until they're past their initial diagnosis. Erica, can you explain why the timing of chemotherapy is so important and how that impacts our decision to proceed with you know, egg freezing or embryo creation initially versus waiting till a later time? Yeah, so not all chemotherapies are the same and not all cancers are treated the same way. So for instance, patients that get diagnosed with leukemia, which is a cancer of the, um, of the blood, those patients oftentimes will have an onset of symptoms that's days to weeks long. They get very ill very quickly. And the standard of care for those patients is to receive chemotherapy essentially right away as soon as they're diagnosed. Those patients, oftentimes the physician does not, the, the treating physician, the oncologist does not have the flexibility to postpone additional, you know, waiting another two or three weeks before they start their chemotherapy because that can really affect their ability to um, beat the cancer. Um, some types of cancer, solid organs primarily, um, thinking about like breast cancer, colon cancer, um, cancers that are more common in younger women, which is what we tend to see more often. Some of those cancers, the outcome for whether or not they beat their cancer or not does not change whether or not they start their, can their chemotherapy immediately or they start their chemotherapy a month from the diagnosis. Also, chemotherapies differ in their makeup and how they affect our, our reproductive tissues. Some chemotherapies, like the ones given in leukemia, don't often cause as much of an insult or injury to the ovaries as the ones that are used for treating solid organ tumors, like breast cancer, for example. The breast cancer chemotherapy regimen is usually very toxic to the ovaries. And we want to try, if, if, if the patient wants to freeze their eggs or embryos, we want to try to get those eggs out before the ovaries are exposed to that chemotherapy. And that's why it's really important to get those patients in right away and get them worked up and try to get their treatment started as soon as possible. So that way we're minimizing the delay in going to using the chemotherapy, but then also getting the best quality eggs we can before those ovaries get that insult. Erica, can you um, explain to our listeners a little bit about what are, what's it for, for women specifically at this point, we'll talk about men in a minute, but for women, what is kind of the spectrum of things that we can offer from kind of least invasive to most invasive? Right. And and that is a, a very broad topic and one that oftentimes occupies a significant part of that new patient you know, conversation. Sometimes it can take 45 minutes to an hour, but we're going to shorten it here. Um, so the least invasive thing that somebody can do 
is to choose to have no invasive treatment at all of any sort, medications, no surgery, no procedures. Depending on the chemotherapy or treatment, radiation, surgery that they're having, that may or may not affect egg quality or the likelihood of pregnancy in the future. Um, So depending on the type of cancer, for some patients, it may be reasonable to do nothing and expect that their fertility will be unchanged. I would say that doesn't happen very often. Um, More often than not, their fertility will be in some way affected, if nothing else than for the fact that we know that we're delaying their chances of being pregnant by at least a couple of years because they have to get over the cancer, they have to pass their remission standpoint, and their doctor has to feel comfortable with them starting a family. Um, And that can mean a couple of years down the road. And for some people, age alone is a factor that might influence whether or not they get pregnant a few years later. In some studies, though not all studies, um, patients have used medicines, injections um, that can help keep the ovaries quiet so that they're not getting periods during their, um, during their treatment. Um, and that helps reduce the chances of anemia or other complications during the course of chemotherapy. Those medicines are designed to essentially turn the brain off so that way the ovaries are not cycling through. And the thought is that those types of medicines, which are called GNRH agonists, are keeping the ovaries kind of in a menopausal state so that they're less likely to pick up the chemotherapy therapy and less likely to have egg quality be affected. Um, Some studies show that that may slightly increase the chance of pregnancy in years going forward, but other studies don't corroborate that information. And it's really not a good replacement um, for what would be considered the gold standard, which would be egg or embryo freezing. So that would be something like Lupron, correct? Correct. Lupron, um, Gazarelix, um, some other uh, medications um, that, uh, that, that oncologists are more familiar with um, in using um, to keep the ovaries quiet and essentially put that patient in a temporary menopause while they're going through their chemotherapy. So how do you counsel someone who comes in who says, okay, I'm about to start chemotherapy. I have the two to three weeks before I have to start it. And I don't know whether or not I should freeze eggs or freeze embryos. How do you counsel patients on the differences between those and which one is more likely to be right for any given patient? Right. And that's kind of that next step when we're thinking about um, intensity of treatments is that if they are kind of able and willing to go beyond just using those medicines, like I said, the, the gold standard for the best way of, of preserving fertility would be for a patient to freeze her eggs or freeze embryos. Now, when we go through each month and we make eggs that are you know, ovulated to, to try to meet up with sperm and make a pregnancy, we actually start the process by having several eggs in the ovary usually be contenders and ultimately only one makes it to the finish line. When we're doing a fertility treatment cycle for fertility preservation, we are using injectable medicines over about two weeks to try to get more of those eggs to make it to the finish line. And then we take those eggs out through a vaginal ultrasound procedure that's done while the patient's asleep. Now, for a patient who is um, deciding whether or not they want to freeze eggs versus freezing embryos, it really kind of depends on what her 
comfort level is with um, having embryos cryopreserved versus just eggs, whether or not she's partnered with somebody she's intending to parent with in the future. And then then thinking about like the logistics of how far those eggs or embryos are going to go for patients to um, what, what is our end point um, for patients? What would they feel satisfied knowing that they had cryopreserved? So if a patient is single, then most patients nowadays would choose to freeze their eggs. Um, it used to be back in the day, our professional um, laboratory side of things, the way that we froze embryos was not really um, conducive to allowing eggs to be successfully frozen and thawed. So, you know, 10, 20 years ago for patients that wanted to freeze anything, they would have to choose a sperm donor to put those eggs with because embryos are very hardy. They can go through that process of being frozen and cryopreserved and thawed um, without too much difficulty frozen eggs are a lot more delicate. Thankfully, nowadays, we have the ability to freeze eggs with a good chance of them surviving the freeze-thaw process and being able to be used later. So many single women would choose to freeze just the eggs and not commit those to a particular sperm donor. And some people who are partnered with somebody who they may not be sure that they're going to be parenting with in a few years um, may choose to freeze their eggs so that they have that flexibility uh, moving forward. Somebody who is in a committed relationship that wants to use a particular person's sperm, either from a donor or their partner, um, would basically have those eggs exposed to sperm at the time that we take the eggs out. And then those embryos that result from the egg and sperm and the successful ones that are able to start growing and dividing, those embryos would be cryopreserved for future use. Some people even go so far as to test those embryos to make sure that they have the right number of chromosomes that's associated with a higher chance of of becoming um, a pregnancy. Now, some people don't want to go through all that. Some people may not even want to find out that their embryos may not have the chance of, uh, they may not have the right number of chromosomes to make a pregnancy. And some people just want to say, you know what, let's just freeze the eggs right now. I'll worry about that, cross that bridge when I come to it. Um, And some people want to have all the information in front of them right away. It's a complex decision. So Erica, when we're talking about cryopreserving these eggs and embryos, can you kind of comment a little bit about the shelf life? That's a, that's a good question. There's not really much in the way of freezer burn that we're worried about. <laughs> um, so once an egg or an embryo is cryopreserved, it stays in that state indefinitely. Um, and it doesn't really matter if you thaw that egg two minutes later, 20 years later, um, it should still have about the same chances of pregnancy and viability, providing that it survives that egg, uh, that freeze-thaw process. Now, one thing that's true among all types of fertility treatment with IVF is that when the egg comes out, the genetics of the egg are set and those do not change with time. So even though the woman, the patient has aged, let's say three or five or even 10 years, the age of the egg at the time it came out is the thing that determines how likely it is that she's going to get pregnant with that egg. So the risk of having a pregnancy, the chance of having a baby that has Down syndrome or the chance of miscarriage, all those things are set at the age of the egg itself, which can be reassuring for some patients, especially if they know that age is not on their side and they know that as years go by, those eggs, even if they make them later on, are not going to be very fertile. They're capturing their fertility now so that way they can use those eggs at a later time when they've um, beaten their cancer. 
Erica, for someone who's partnered, what can you tell them if they're trying to decide between should I freeze eggs or should I freeze embryos? What can you tell them about roughly about the cost and about the prognostic information that you can give them about outcomes? Right. So it it depends on, you know, first of all, I think that it's best to try to have that conversation in private with the patient um, because she and her partner may not be on the same page about <laughs> whether or not they're intending to parent together in the future. And it could make for an awkward conversation. But, but if they are, I think, you know, it's nice to compare and contrast kind of the differences there. Right. And so, like I said, freezing eggs essentially gives us a number of usable eggs that we could have in the in the future for potential pregnancies. We know that there's attrition that happens all along the way, right? Not every egg is going to be mature. Not every mature egg is going to be fertilized. Not every fertilized egg is going to continue to grow and divide. And not every continuing blastocyst is going to make a pregnancy. So the chances of any given egg working can be anywhere from probably about 2 to 10%, depending on your age. The chance of an embryo working is probably anywhere between 15 and 60%, depending on your age. And so it really depends, again, on what the patient's endpoint wants to be. Some people want to freeze as many eggs as they can and worry later about whether or not those eggs are going to work. Some people want to have all that laid out front first. They want to know that they have two embryos, even if they start out with 20 eggs, and that those two embryos each have a 50-50 chance of making a pregnancy. Cost-wise, it depends on whether or not you're freezing eggs versus freezing embryos, because if you freeze embryos, the lab is doing more things with and for those eggs and guiding them through that process. And so the costs associated with the laboratory side of getting embryos to the blastocyst stage and freezing them is oftentimes more than it would be if you just took those eggs out and froze them right away because you're not continuing to continue their culture for another week or potentially do biopsies on those embryos. Cost is an interesting question that I'd like to um, definitely bring up because it, it's, a def it's a variable that a lot of people are trying to consider among all these other things, right? They just got told they have cancer. They might have a high deductible to meet. They don't know how much it's going to cost to go through the chemo, much less how much these things cost and whether or not their insurance or their employer covers fertility benefits as part of their, um, as part of their standard um, uh, benefit. Um, packets that, that they get when, when they first join a company. Um, so all, I mean, I'm sure all clinics, but our clinic specifically, you know, will be able to review their insurance information to let them know, hey, this is covered, this is not covered, here's what you can expect for this, that, or the other. Now, there are some organizations and groups which are fantastic about realizing that these are very important needs for cancer patients, that oftentimes they do not have fertility coverage to cover either the medications or the treatment themselves, and are willing to step in and, and pitch in and say, hey, you know, this this is important. We want to help you and be supportive through this process. So there's a couple of pharmacy companies um, that have dedicated fertility preservation programs that patients can apply for to essentially get their medicines down to low or no cost. Um, there are 
programs through the Livestrong Foundation that will um, evaluate a, a patient and make sure they don't have insurance coverage and that they fit within their guidelines to be able to offer discounted services as well as medications um, to help those patients get through the cycle. So some patients end up paying zero dollars for getting through the cycle. Some patients, of course, will have incidental things that come up and some patients will have, um, will have family members pitch in, will have grants or community grant found, uh, foundations that will um, step up to the plate and help these patients get through. And sometimes they find out that they work for an employer that covers these things for patients, whether or not they have cancer. Um, and so those things are, are obviously very, um, it, it's a lot to think about for that patient. But the reason that those programs are in place is so that hopefully it takes one more thing off the table for them so that they can focus on what's important. So what happens, let's say a patient goes through fertility preservation and has her eggs or embryos frozen, and let's say it's five years later and she's now in remission and her doctor has given her the all clear and she's ready to start a family. What happens at that point? Yeah. So I always tell patients and I say, you know, as soon as you're ready to start a family, come in and let's have a talk, right? Because the way that we're going to move forward with their family building depends a lot on what their current health situation is, right? Sometimes patients are still getting periods, right? Sometimes patients haven't had a period in five years, right? Um, depending on how their chemo affected them. So sometimes we have to do a little bit to get the uterus ready um, and start exposing it to hormones that it hasn't been seen in a couple of years. Of course, making sure that we're getting the oncologists all clear about that, making sure that they're not concerned that the cancer is going to come back during a potential pregnancy. And oftentimes having them speak with a high-risk obstetric physician just to review their previous history and things that they may need to be concerned about or get evaluated prior to pregnancy. Some types of chemotherapy are not dangerous to the ovaries per se, but they can cause um, persistent problems with heart or lung function. And we know that you know being pregnant is like being on a treadmill test for nine months. And we wanna make sure that everything is healthy with the rest of that patient um, not just her reproductive organs, to make sure that when she does get pregnant, that it's as smooth and um, uneventful pregnancy as possible. Generally, assuming that all those things are clear, they go through a process where for a few weeks, we build up their uterine lining and make sure that the, um, that the uterus is in good position to receive an embryo. Um, and then a few days prior to the um, embryo transfer, we start an additional set of hormones to basically start the uterine clock and tell it, tell it that it's going to be time to go in five or six days. We put the embryo in and in about a week and a half, we find out if they're pregnant. So Erica, for somebody that's out there that's listening, that is contemplating um, either freezing eggs or freezing embryo because of their cancer, what would be your major take-home point from what we've talked about today? So whether or not they should do either or choosing in between the two? Or just what would be your best piece of advice based on all the information you've given us today? I would say that the most important, I would say my recommendation would be do whatever they can to be as proactive they can as they can about their fertility. If they have the time and the means and the, the blessing from their oncologist to go ahead with an egg or embryo freezing cycle, that is far and away the thing that is going to give them the highest chance of pregnancy using their own eggs. The second point I want to make is that my important and my foremost goal at that first lengthy meeting with the patient is that 
they should feel good about that decision no matter what it is. And some people don't have the ability to go through an egg freezing cycle for whatever reason, finances, time, blessing of their oncologist, and they don't have the chance to do that. It doesn't mean that they're a failure. It doesn't mean that they made the wrong decision. It means that there's going to be other opportunities and other ways for us to help them with their family building. And they need to feel like they are empowered to say, yes, I am actively choosing this. I'm actively choosing to freeze my eggs. I'm actively choosing to not freeze my eggs because I'm worried about, you know, cancer's getting passed off to my, my children someday. What are my options for getting pregnant without using my own eggs if I can't do that? And we talk about using donor embryos or donor eggs or adoption or foster parenting or you know intended childlessness. And, and no matter what that patient's choice is, they should feel good about that decision. They should know that that is the best decision for them, the best decision for their future family um, moving forward. I think those are great words of advice because the right decision is the right person. It's the right decision for that individual. I think that's, that's a great message, Erica. It's really important. There's a lot of, there's a lot of feelings, you know, that patient, first of all, 24 hours before did not think they were going to be sitting in your office. Most patients that have infertility never think that they're going to be meeting with us. And certainly patients that were recently diagnosed with cancer had no clue in their mind that they would ever be seeing a fertility specialist for something that is a very private decision and one that usually that they're not making for a while. And all of a sudden, all these things have been thrown on them. They're sitting in my office with a you know overwhelmed, bewildered expression on their face they don't even know what to ask. It is my privilege and my responsibility to give them the information that they may be willing, or I guess, ready to hear at that moment, but at the very least be ready to review when the time is right. So that way they know that yes, there are lots of different ways we can move forward. And some of these require a decision at the last minute or at the, at the you know, the forefront minute. Um, some of these can be decisions we can think about months or years from now and whatever it is, it's okay because we are part of that team that's going to get them to survivorship. This is not a one-time visit. This is a conversation we're starting today and we're going to have for the next several years. Well, on that note, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful talking with you, Erica. So bright things for the future and we're always here for those patients. So this is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Dr. Carrie Bedian from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. And Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Thank you so much, Erica. We really enjoyed all the information you told us today, and I know it's been really helpful for our patients. Thank you. 